With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Camp Constitution Radio with your host, Hal Shirtless. This show is heard on WBCQ every Monday and Thursday evenings at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You could also pick it up on our Podomatic page, podomatic.com, and just put in Camp Constitution. We have uh, not all of our shows there, but many of our shows, especially those that I think are, are the, be- the better ones. You can also go to our YouTube channel, and you can find uh, our videos, uh, our radio shows that we convert to YouTube video and upload them, as well as uh, many other things. Our YouTube, we have well over a 1,000 videos. And uh, this show is brought to you by... Camp Constitution, which among other things runs a week-long family camp, and we very much hope that we'll be able to get our camp, uh, run our camp this year with all kinds of cancellations. We've already canceled a homeschool show, two homeschool shows that we were going to be, and uh, many other events, but God willing, we will still hold our family camp from July 19th to the 24th in Plainfield, New Hampshire at the Singing Hills Christian Camp and Retreat Center. So please visit our website to learn more about our camp, campconstitution.net. Now we have a guest on the line, uh, Mr. Leo Loving. How are you doing, Leo? Fine, Hal. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, thank you, on this uh, beautiful uh, overcast early spring day. We're hanging in there, my family and I. Uh, thankfully, my... Uh, but the only business that's been shut down is uh, besides Camp Constitution, as far as our you know activities, we're still busy doing things online and uh, getting the house up in Lexington, our learning center, ready for for uh, for you know, it's already open. But you know we hope to have some great programs uh, there. And uh, but we're hanging in there. So um, anyway, uh, I got a call from Leo just oh, I don't know about a week ago, thanking me for uploading a video. Uh, that we'll be talking about that he produced uh, direct he produced many years ago. It was the topic of uh, John Birch. Now uh, I have served as a full-time field rep for the John Birch Society for 26 years, so uh, I, I I have lots of admiration for the man who's uh, who who was who had an organization, a patriotic uh, organization named in his honor. So, Leo, tell us a little bit about your background before we go into uh, the documentary and John Birch. Sure. I uh, am glad to be speaking to you this morning from uh, Elgin, Illinois, a west uh, suburban town of Chicago. And I was born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland, and um, worked for 43 years for corporate America most of those years as accountant for uh, oil and gas company and uh, retired in the year 2000. I am now 81 years of age and I am still trying to get a movie, a feature film made about U.S. Army Captain John Morrison Birch, one of my all-time favorite heroes. 
Well, you know, Robert Welch, um, who wrote a book called The Life of John Birch, he had a friend in the U.S. Senate, Senator Nolan from California, and so I think he somehow got access to the file on John Birch and was just so moved about his story that uh, when he formed the organization some years later, he looked at John Birch as the best of America's manhood, as young, uh, he was a uh, young Christian, he loved the Lord, he put his life on the line for others, and he saw him the best of America's manhood. What was it about John Birch that got your attention? Well, it was just, excuse me, just exactly what you mentioned. He was, he represents the best of America. His courage, his determination to do the right thing for God and country drove him to uncanny, um, uh, uncanny excursions into a military life for the United States Army Air Force that uh, garnered him uh, numerous medals and, uh, and they gave us um, an appreciation of just what real patriotism is. Can you give us a, a good biographical uh, sketch of John Birch from his early days, from his days at college, and then on to the missionary field? Tell us a little bit. So just give us a, you get the floor. You can just give us a nice little over, historical overview of this, this great man. All right. Well, I'll do the best I can. John was born in Lander, India, to missionary parents, uh, May the 28th. 1918 and uh, because of his uh, father's health situation um, he had contacted malaria and uh, the doctor told uh, John's father that if he didn't uh, get out of that climate that he would not survive so at age uh, two or so John and uh, his family mother and father uh, moved to America and uh, he, they settled in, um, eventually they settled in Macon, Georgia, and John Birch was raised in uh, Macon, Georgia. And um, he uh, excelled in high school, graduated uh, earlier than uh, his peers, and uh, went on to uh, attend uh, Mercer University there in uh, Macon and graduated from Macon. Georgia Mercer University in 1939. And after his graduation from Mercer College, magna cum laude, he uh, went to the Fort Worth Bible Baptist Institute for a year, uh, two years training to be a, um, a missionary. Uh, he was able to complete the two years training in just one year and uh, then he uh, decided that his uh, life's ambition was to be a missionary. And uh, he surveyed the globe and decided that uh, China is uh, the part of the earth that needed uh, missionary, um, missionaries most of all. So he, uh, he decided to go to China to be a missionary. And uh, he arrived in Shanghai Harbor, July 1940 and began his missionary career. And uh, <clears throat> now John had to live on the diet, the Chinese diet, which was kind of tough for someone, a southern boy to, to adopt, adapt. Uh, 
and he had to learn the Chinese language, which uh, I think was Mandarin, which is not easy, again, for, uh, for an Anglo-Saxon tongue or an American tongue to comprehend it. Uh, I've had some friends who have been missionaries to China over the years, and a uh, few of them have been able to master the language, but that itself is an accomplishment, just learning to be able to speak Chinese. Yes, according to my uh, recollection, John accomplished uh, Mandarin language in about seven months, and he was able to speak so well that they could not tell the difference between John or a nationalist Chinese speaking the Mandarin language, so that helped him immensely with his missionary work. Another interesting... Oh, go ahead. Please, excuse me. Another interesting thing about John's um, missionary work was um, when he arrived in China, uh, he immediately settled in with a a missionary field uh, group and was living in a missionary's house. But uh, after he learned the language, he decided that that kind of life, living in a house was not his kind of missionary work that he wanted to do. So he decided to be a field missionary and live off the land, as you've spoken about earlier. And he had to survive on um, meager Chinese uh, diet. Uh, At that time, China was, of course, under uh, the eastern, almost all of eastern China was occupied by the Japanese Imperial Army. And in order to uh, accomplish his missionary work and to help save souls and uh, restore damaged, uh, blown down congregations from the war, uh, he uh, he had to go behind Japanese uh, enemy lines, so to speak, uh, during that time. And because of his fluency of the language and his ability to disguise himself, John, uh, although Caucasian, he did have uh, these sloping eyes, dark hair, so he actually... And he was a slight of stat. What was his height? Leo, what was his height? He wasn't a very tall man, was he? I believe he was about five foot nine. Five foot nine. Well, that would be a little taller than uh, the average Chinese at that time, I believe. Yes, he was maybe a foot taller uh, than most Chinese, but he was very, very cautious when he did his missionary work and he was able to disguise himself as uh, simply a Chinese uh, nationalist and was able to traverse the countryside and perform his missionary work. And then, uh, again, China, Japan was already at war with China and then Pearl Harbor came around, which would be December 7th of 1941, and then a few days, within a day or so, the United States declared, formally declared war. So now we're at war with China. And that probably, uh, I know some of the missionaries went home, I think, but he stayed. And then the famous Doolittle bombing mission uh, over Tokyo. And you want to pick it up from there and discuss uh, the, his connections with um, Colonel, at the time, Colonel Doolittle. Yes, it was uh, April of 1942 when uh, there was a bombing raid led by Colonel Jimmy Doolittle, um, and uh, they bombed Tokyo. And uh, because of their inability to get back to the aircraft carrier, 
um, they had to Jimmy Doolittle's crew and many of the other uh, crews had to ditch their planes in China and uh, bail out and uh, try to best they could to get to Allied operations. And it was during this time that uh, while Jimmy Doolittle and his crew number one were secreted in a sampan banked on a river that John came in contact with uh, Doolittle. He was, John was eating a meal in a Chinese restaurant um, and uh, he was approached by um, a Chinese nationalist, uh, came over to his table, bumped uh, into him and whispered down to him, if, you're, uh, if you are American, follow me. And uh, so the Chinese left uh, the restaurant and John uh, quickly followed after and uh, he was led down to this uh, sampan poured on this river and approached uh, the sampan and uh, and went up onto the sampan and knocked on the wooden door and had any Americans in there and uh, he didn't hear any response and so he banged on the door again is there any, any Americans in there and finally, they, they opened the door, and there was uh, John Birch uh, was looking at Colonel Jimmy Doolittle and his uh, crew of five. And uh, thanks to John's uh, ability to, uh, to know where he was and how to get to Allied operations, uh, he was able to, to um, rescue Jimmy Doolittle and his crew and uh, help them uh, get back to Allied operations uh, in Kunming, China. One of the interesting little anecdote is that uh, I think the crew members uh, worked, were a little cautious. They thought some Japanese may have learned English, but he had this southern drawl, and he said, no, no chap has got to sound that way. And I think one of them yeah. was the Lord's name in vain, and he said, that's a great name, but I'm not him. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it was Paul. Paul, excuse me. It was Paul. Paul Leonard, I believe he was. uh, uh, He was uh, one of the gunners, I believe, on the Jimmy Doolittle's crew, and he and he uh, he heard uh, he heard John Birch, uh, and and recognized it being American. And he said, "Jesus Christ." Just like uh, that. Uh, and Bert said, well, wow, yeah. that's a mighty fine name, but I am not him. Oh, my <laughs> yeah, <laughs> But um, at any I rate, have, it's a very interesting part of our history. I, I had the privilege of meeting um, Robert Height, um, the, the co-pilot, uh, oh, probably in the oh, 15 or 18 years ago, right, right, when the, uh-huh. right in the wake of that movie Pearl Harbor came out, which the, uh, there was about five or seven of the two little raiders that were at this gathering in, uh, near Boston. And uh-huh. to a man, they just they didn't like the movie. They said that uh, Colonel Doolittle was depicted as a vulgar, swearing, per, you know, with vulgar language. And they said, uh-huh. Mister Colonel Doolittle, he was a tough guy. He demanded a lot. He said, but he never used profanity at all. He was very clean cut about that. And uh-huh. I think just last year, the last of the Doolittle Raiders passed away. It could be. Yes, it could very well be. Did you um, interview? I, I don't recall. I've watched your documentary. I don't recall if you've interviewed any of the um, Doolittle Raiders. 
I did. I interviewed uh, Lieutenant Richard Cole, a uh, crew member. Oh, and Cole. I met, I met him too. Yeah. Uh, and the navigator, uh, Hank, um, oh gosh, I can't recall his name. Uh, Hank Potter, I believe it is. Potter? Was it? No. At any rate, I, I, I interview, interviewed the navigator and Lieutenant Richard Cole. They're part of so, the documentary uh, film. Yeah. So he led uh, he led uh, Doolittle and his crew to safety, and then it was uh, he decided to join the army. Oh, th- th- those days it was called the U.S. Army Air Corps, and he wanted to be a chaplain, as I understood. But uh, General Claire Chenault, who was his commander, said, uh, "I don't need chaplains. I need intelligence officers." So uh, that's where you spent uh, the rest of the war, mainly behind enemy lines, gathering information, rescuing uh, down pilots, et cetera. He was, what was it, the 8th Air Force, was it called? Uh, the 23rd Fighter Group of the, the 23rd 14th Fighter Group. Air Force. 23rd so he, Fighter Group of the 14th Air Force, yeah. He was known as the eyes of the 14th Air Force, I believe. Yes, yes. Yes, an amazing, an amazing young man. Uh, it's uh, he he struggled, I'm sure, to make that decision to turn in his missionary suit for an army uniform. But thank God he did. He contributed immensely uh, in the war effort and in the fight against uh, Imperial Japan at that time. And he was highly decorated, although he didn't really like necessarily, you know, getting awards. He was decorated as a picture. Of him, there are not a whole lot of pictures of him uh, in, in, in during World War II, but there's a picture of him getting a, a medal pinned on him by General Chenault. And yes, then, uh, now take us to uh, the war ended. There was uh, actually there was a, the, the second bomb was dropped on uh, Japan, and then there was a truce. I think the formal end of the war was September 2nd on the Big Mo when there was a formal surrender. But they had surrendered. There was a truce. And so talk about the mission that John was on, his final mission, and what happened to him. Yes, yes. A um, little bit of the backstory here. Um, John's commander, General Claire Chardon, had actually been recalled in July of 1945 to uh, Washington, D.C., so he was no longer commander of the 14th Air Force when John Birch went on his last secret mission in August of 1945. Um, John uh, was to meet up with his uh, colleague, radio man, Lieutenant William Miller, in Suzhou, and uh, uh, to... uh, well, we really don't know what he was there going to be going there for because it was a secret mission. But he was to meet up with his uh, radio man colleague, Lieutenant Bill Miller, in Suzhou, and they took different paths. Um, Miller took the railway and uh, directly to Suzhou, and um, John uh, went by, um, by river. So at any rate, uh, as John was uh, leaving um, uh, the river part of the journey and uh, taking the uh, the road to Suzhou, uh, he was with a group of 11 
some Chinese uh, officers that he was with, and there were two Korean officers, and uh, Lieutenant Quan uh, Fu Tung, who was his uh, first his aide, and they were um, they had to uh, traverse to Suzhou by rail part of the journey. So unfortunately, the rail had been destroyed by the communists, so the train that they were on could no longer navigate uh, north, could no longer move uh, northward. So what they did was they uh, exited the train, took all of their gear, and put it on the side of the road, and uh, they saw that uh, some, uh, this was after, after the truce, and they saw that uh, some Japanese um, operators, um, construction people uh, and uh, army officers had come down to that part of the rail that was destroyed and they brought a lot of equipment with them and they were repairing the rail. And they brought all of this equipment with them on a handrail car. So John... um, immediately went over to um, the commanding Japanese officer and uh, demanded to have that uh, handrail car. And the uh, Japanese officer (laughs) reluctantly did give the handrail car to John Birch and his crew. They got on that rail car and started pumping that rail car going north hour after hour and that of sweltering sun, and uh, <clears throat> they had traversed so many miles, and they were approached by a hostile band of Chinese communist regular troops, several hundred of them. And to make a long story short, um, that uh, group of Chinese uh, troops, the officer there, um, they demanded that uh, John turn over uh, the weapon, their weapons and uh, their uh, uh, gear, and John, of course, refused um, and uh, started scolding them, um, telling them, you know, what are you, what are you trying to do? The war is over. You should uh, help us to maintain the peace, so on and so forth. And he, uh, he was very, John was very angry at this point. And uh, my research shows that um, this is what actually happened. Um, There was John's belligerent attitude about not giving up his weapons and equipment, uh, which, of course, was the right thing to do. So what happened was John demanded to see the Chinese Communist commanding officer. And uh, so, fine, uh, the communist uh, who was in charge said, okay, you follow me. And John's aide, Lieutenant Quan Fu Tung, said, I will go with him to the Chinese communist officer. And the officer said, okay, you two come with me. So it was John and his aide, uh, Lieutenant Tung, who went into the hut of the communist commander. And John immediately went over to this communist commander and started berating him, just telling him 
giving him all kinds of heck for his attitude towards Americans. And it was at that time that the commanding officer in uh, in that hut, he just pointed to his soldiers and said, shoot them. Mm. And so they shot John Birch and his aide, Lieutenant Juanford Tone. And the reason we know this story to be true is because John Birch did not survive. He was murdered. He was killed. But Juanford Tone, he was injured. He gravely injured but not fatally. So he was picked up and taken to a hospital, and he gave testimony to the U.S. Army Air Force about the death of Captain John Birch. And if you read that testimony, the reason that John took the attitude that he did, Kwan Fu Tung told John, he said, don't argue, you don't want to argue with these. John looked at Kwan Fu Tung and said, I do not care what happens to me, but the people back home, they have to know what kind of people we are dealing with here. And that was what caused John's death. And what's fascinating is that he was totally correct. The Chinese communists have always been our enemies, even when uh, Nixon opened up relations with them kicked out taiwan uh, out of uh, the un and uh, the goal was that if we if we're if we're friendly with the chinese communists they'll be less aggressive they'll be better they'll, they'll be a better everything will be great we'll be able to get great products out of that country and i'll look at the mess we're in and uh, not, not only uh, not only have our policies helped destroy a lot of our industry but of course they've uh, they've murdered millions of their own people, genocide, and, and now the coronavirus, thanks to the Chinese communists and the people in this country who, uh, who have this attitude that they're our friends and we can open up our borders and not worry about anything. So now we don't have a whole lot of time left. So, uh, you did this incredible documentary in 2003, and you interviewed people who uh, knew John very well, members of his family, I think wasn't also didn't he have a, a lady friend that they were getting serious with? Uh, she was a nurse, I believe. Uh, yes, um, she actually she was a her name is Dorothy Ewan, and uh, she and John were good friends. She was actually became a radio uh, operator for the 14th Air Force, and they got to know each other quite well. Um, May I just say one final thing, uh, Pal? Oh, sure. Oh, no, we've we got a few minutes left. Okay, four good. minutes great. left. So, yeah. All right, great. So, actually, what drove me to make the documentary film was the fact that back in 1992, I completed writing a screenplay a feature film screenplay about Captain John Birch. I could never sell it to Hollywood. After five years of trying, in 1997, I decided to make a documentary film about John Birch. And that's how I got started on the documentary film. But I'm I'm still trying this day to sell that screenplay to someone so if you know if it's allowed on your air show, I can be glad. I'll be glad to give folks my phone number, also my oh, agent's phone number. Oh, 
All right. Oh, I would love to. Yeah, please. Anyone yes. who has who has uh, any information, uh, would like information about uh, what we have been talking about here, they can call me at 801-703-3481. That is 801-703-3481. And I have a literary agent who has been helping me with the screenplay. His name is George Lilly. George Lilly and his phone number if you're interested, if there's anyone out there interested in the business side of the screenplay, you may call George at 303-550-9550. That's 303-550-9550. And the listeners who didn't get the numbers, you can if you just contact me, I can give you Leo's uh, contact information if for some reason you missed that. Let me also mention a couple of books on John Birch, and one of them, and I'm holding a copy in my hand, uh, The Life of John Birch, which was uh, written by Robert Welch, who was the founder of the John Birch Society. And there was another book that came out, I think, in the early 80s or late 70s. It was called The Secret File on John Birch written by uh, Mr. Hefley from Texas. He and his wife used to have a textbook committee where they would review uh, the Texas uh, uh, textbooks for high schools and junior high schools. Uh, And he made this this point, and initially when I heard it, I said, I don't know about that, but I, I agree with it now. He said that if the American people knew the truth about John Birch in in the immediate aftermath of of the murder, that uh, there would not have been a Korean War and a Vietnam War. And I thought, you know something? We helped the communist, General Marshall, uh, and the policy. Even John Kennedy as a senator complained about it. I think that may be true, that we would have not, not supported the Chinese communists. They would not have taken power, and we would not have had a Korean War and a Vietnam War. So I, uh, I, and those books are available um, on Amazon or other places, probably for short money. And I have some copies. If you contact me, I'll be able to get you, you know, make a donation, and I'll be able to get you some copies. Well, Leo, thank you so much for being on. And uh, I wish my your, pleasure. I wish, you, I wish you success. I hope that somebody. Uh, I don't expect Hollywood to pick it up but maybe some of these uh, Christian uh, independent film producers would. So with that, folks, you've been listening to Camp Constitution Radio with your host, Hal Shirtliff, on WBCQ, The Planet. And until next week, may God richly bless you. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, only by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.